Thomas Beller is an associate professor of English at Tulane University, a regular contributor to The New Yorker, and the author of J.D. Salinger, The Escape Artist, How to Be a Man, and Seduction Theory, among other books. He's noted that his writing differs in form and genre, but tends to share a lot of the same preoccupations. So the dynamics of relationships, a sense of place, and a preoccupation with the nature and effect of time. We talk in this conversation about his book, Lost in the Game, a book about basketball, which is definitely concerned with this question of time. I ask him about his sense that pickup basketball especially has its own time, ruled by the sun, he says, or by the willingness of those with a ball to keep shooting in the dark. We even circle around to this experience of shooting in the dark and try to see it as a metaphor for players that have a way of approaching the game with a sort of second sight. Players like Nikola Jokic or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, these all-time great titans of the game. But we also zoom in on the embodied experience of putting up shots and what it means for practice to feel like something is both meditative and ritualistic, mindful and maniacal. Thomas was kind of astonished that I care as much as I do about basketball. And of course, this is a podcast that is often very serious where I'm clearly really dedicated to working through some despairing and deeply scary issues with people. So in a sense, this episode is almost like an interlude between these more serious concerns. But honestly, I take basketball pretty seriously too. In the same way that Marcus Boone spoke to me about his personal relationship with music over the years, how music lets us think about the sort of war for our time that people are constantly engaged in, I wanted to talk to Beller because I think his ideas are also about that pursuit of a more engaging, autonomous relationship to time beyond just being productive for the sake of it. As he puts it in the book, there is joy in being lost in the game, a joy that doesn't have to be relinquished. So Thomas and I talk about what we love about basketball, the things about the sport that fill us with ambivalence, and why we keep coming back to it. We get to a point where we sort of say we appreciate both the anarchic and analytic aspects of the game, the dance and the discipline. You know, why do we care about a sport that still tends to be dominated by a discourse of intense and androcentric competition? Is that healthy? What kind of a use of public space is playground basketball? What effects has professionalization had on the sport? So um, this book that you've written is about basketball, but it's certainly about more than that. Uh, so while I definitely want to talk to you about this recent NBA season that's just concluded and the, the road that the Denver Nuggets took to the championship, uh, I wanted to start by asking about how the book was written. Um, you say that there was a moment in writing the book where you didn't know that you were writing a book about basketball. That's really interesting to me, um, given that the title metaphor of the book is being lost in the game. So in a sense, the book is, I think, recreating that feeling of being lost in the game kind of through the writing. There's there's like that rhythm to it. I'm, I might be editorializing. It feels to me like it mirrors a sense of being in a flow state when playing basketball. Did you, when you were writing, try to leave room for flow, improvisation, and unconsciousness when you were writing it? Well, first of all, that's a very flattering, perceptive, and by me appreciated uh, take, I would say 
you know, I don't leave room for those things in writing. I feel writing sort of embodies those things or, you know, I have to kind of chip away at various defenses and impediments to get to that condition at which point writing can begin. To answer your question about, you know, when was the book being consciously written, you know, just as a sort of prologue to that answer, I feel like a lot of my books are, but they're, they're trying to take weaknesses and recast them as virtues. And that might be true of like every short story writer, which was what my first book was. Um, I definitely belong to a generation of writers who has labored under this sort of burden of feeling like you really ought to be publishing a novel. I kind of half managed to with my second book. So in this case, you know, there's a lot of unconsciousness in the composition of pieces. And then at some point, I think with every book I've written, with the possible exception of this biography of J.D. Salinger, where I had this like tyrannical, interesting editor in my face the whole time, but they're kind of like groping in the dark. I think Don DeLillo said, you know, writing a novel is like taking a cross country trip at night with the headlights off. So I definitely belong to the driving in the dark and hopefully laughing in the dark uh, school. I like that. I mean, and I do see uh, echoes of it in the way that you kind of talk about the temporality of playground basketball. I mean, you write that uh, basketball played in public spaces like the playground happens on its own time, ruled by the sun or by the night lights or by the willingness of those with the ball to keep shooting in the dark. And I've had that experience of shooting in the dark. And it's interesting, um, you know, how it changes the kind of movement of your body and your sense of where the rim is. Uh, I see that idea about like the temporality of playground basketball as connected to the way that you kind of philosophize a little bit about practice as something Mm -hmm. that might be more meditative and ritualistic, kind of like yoga practice, you say. Totally. Basketball fans are going to know or or have associations between practice and I think like Allen Iverson's famous rant where he says practice like dozens of times. Yes. But um, that that thing of practice is about sort of reflecting on the meaning really of like choosing to use your time in a seemingly gratuitous way. Yeah. Uh, putting up shots instead of being instead of being productive. Um, but you say that ultimately there is like real joy in that. To kind of uh, dig into that. I spoke with Marcus Boone for the podcast as well. He's another Duke University Press author, and he has a book about his relationship with music over the years. And it's similar in the sense that he's really talking about this like war for our time that people are constantly engaged in. Um, Is that protecting of play of like non-productive time a main theme in the book? And how is it connected to your relationship to these spaces of playing that you're remembering throughout the book? Yeah, I mean... It's a fine line in between protecting time that whether you want to call it meditation or some sort of, you know, I can't stand the rhetoric of wellness. I don't want to buy into it, but you know, you can imagine there's a slew of words, basically something that's positive and constructive and just completely, you know, being a drug addict and just nodding off and trying to get away from it all and a sheer act of escapism. I mean, of course, as you pointed out, like I make the point that like AI going on about, and by the way, how fantastic is it that Alan Iverson's nickname has been yeah. suddenly shot into the stratosphere of usage in the culture with the words AI. Yes. I, don't, I can't even figure out what the ironies of that are, but 
the, the NBA player who may be the least robotic, the least um, language model in terms of like what's his, the most unpredictable, the most untethered, the most organically mm-hmm. in a flow state of his own game, like the least artificial intelligence style of play is named AI. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, more concisely, I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question, except that you, it's heads or tails. You know, is it a beautiful refuge? And a valuable act of like pr- protection, not totally different. I don't know the way some people deal with birding or whatever they do to kind of get into a positive, concentrated state, mm. reading, writing, or is it, uh, yeah, going to a bar to, you know, at an unseemly hour. Right. Yeah. And, and this is like a, a, obviously like a central comparison that you're, you're making in the book. Um, and you, you know, gesture to your know, relationship to alcohol over time and stuff. Um, and it's like, it is the case that, and I think Eve Sedgwick wrote about this, that, you know, you can kind of get addicted to anything, right? Like the, the pathologization of drug misuse is easy. Um, it's like an easy scapegoat in some ways. Um, but you can certainly get obsessed with, uh, various forms of kind of endless self-discipline, which is something you also talk about in the book. I think Kevin Garnett is sort of the figure for you of this kind of like almost pathological self-discipline, or at least you're speculating on whether it's love or that kind of obsession. Yeah. Masochism is the word I was. Sure. You know. Well, get, get, just to, for your for yeah, listeners yeah. sake, I'm talking about a guy who would go on to be not just a famous, wealthy basket professional athlete, but, but notoriously aggressive in your face, Mm-hmm. psychologically dominant one of the great tra- one of the great aggressive trash talkers of all time that this guy kevin garnett as a young kid would show up at his neighborhood playground where there was an older bigger stronger guy who would just abuse him beat the shit out of him you know it's almost like some freudian allegory of abuse you know it all happened to garnett and then he turns he learns it and turns it around and it's seen as an incredibly positive thing garnett is funny he's a great player He's a multimillionaire, you know, what's to complain about? He feels very himself, you know, like he's achieved some sort of self, really, he hasn't been stepped on in the world. Uh, but on the other side, like, what the hell is going on here? That he keeps mm. going back to this place that he gets abused, you know? And I was fascinated by that detail. The guy's, the guy, his abuser, I mean, it's absurd to use this language, but never mind. Maybe it's not absurd. I own you. That's what this guy, his name was Bear, apparently. Yeah. I tried to find him. I tried to get into the South Carolina. You know, I, I couldn't, mm. got close. But, you know, he would, that was a line that he would say, I own you. And I'm sure there were a few expletives in there. And I just thought this was quite interesting. Do we valorize his dedication to the game and his craft? Or do we send him to a friggin' psychoanalyst? Like, come on, dude. Why mm. step away from the abuse? Like, it's a, it's a strange uh, sort of riddle that I was interested in and, and related to. For for me, I appreciate the kind of not like totally neutral, but sort of non-judgmental way that you just sort of speculate on what's going on there. Because like, you know, one academic position would be to say, this is like, obviously kind of hyper-masculinity run amok that it's like fetishizing domination the way we do with our metaphors and talking about aggression and all these things. Um, you know, it's, it's probably not good for society, but you, you sort of confess that on some level you are attached to bringing that level of intensity to like pickup games because it's just more fun. 
Correct. So it's like not denying that those that exhilaration is is real too as part of the point. And and so like I like that it occupies this sort of position of ambivalence to some extent. And and I think about it in relationship to like somebody like Jamal Murray, right? The starting point guard for the Denver Nuggets. Right. We come back to Canada. Yeah, like growing up in Kitchener, Ontario, he apparently was like put through the paces by his father, you know, made to run uphill backwards in the morning, like just the endless kind of martial self-discipline. Um, yeah. Push-ups, push-ups in the snow is the famous image. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and somebody might look at that and say like, well, that is punitive and unnecessary, but mm-hmm. Murray swears by that level of discipline. And obviously it paid off because he's able to shoot with enormous like control and poise and, and he's now an NBA champion and all that stuff. I have a few thoughts, but the f- first I just, I want to interject at this interval to say uh, how grateful I am at what a, how closely you seem to have read this book and how sort of amused and intrigued I am that a serious intellectual with the, you know, conversant in academic literature. I guarantee you that no other podcast I've been on for this book has mentioned like Eve Sedgwick <laughs> and not even Edie Sedgwick, come to think of it. But the point is, thank you for this. Mm-hmm. It's great. Um, and back to what you're talking about. Yeah, the toxicity of this way of being, this hyper masculinity is totally fucked up. Mm-hmm. It's not at all clear that it's a healthy thing. I, it's not at all clear that playing pickup basketball is in any way good for you physically or mentally. Um, it's a place where you can get hurt physically and mentally and for better and for worse, that's part of it. You know, you can, I, I'm not, I'm a little nervous about stepping into too grand an allegory, but that's true of public space in general. Mm. It's kind of what's fun about cities. It's kind of what's fun about being out and about, you know, there's an element of unpredictability and, and, pick up basketball and over here in one corner, high end athletic culture or in the other corner. And then the sports writing and the rhetoric around sports, which is a bigger category, you know, it's quite toxic. It's absurd (laughs) actually, you know, and sometimes funny, like even in fact, Alan Iverson is often quite funny. It's true. And he was a King, King of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there is like a, yeah, theatricality to it at that stage that you, uh, write about to some extent in, in terms of your work as a journalist following the NBA, your sort of proximity to basketball gods, Mm -hmm. but you know, you mentioned public space and the kind of unpredictability of it, undecidability of it. Like this is the way the book is structured. Like you're thinking about these two axes, the world of organized basketball, the world of pickup basketball. And I like that you stress basketball is a sport that contains many games. Uh, I like that you pointed out that it can be played alone. I really relate to that, um, you know. But the the spaces for that that kind of play, that diversity of different kinds of play, seems to be shrinking, and that's a major concern for you too. If the game has all these different forms, you kind of need those forms to have spaces where they can thrive. And so I wondered if you could kind of expand on this sense that you have that streetball in New York specifically is in decline. Like you're not sure if that's a paranoid belief or the product of nostalgia, but you seem to land on the idea that it it is happening and it's the product of certain things like gentrification and so on. Um, could you offer some thoughts on just like the erosion of public space and where in the book you found a sense of how a collective will, a sense of community can fight to preserve those spaces? Well, 
That's a huge question. Um, you know, this is actually the first moment that it's occurred to me why, given your other interests and your other guests, the, the ecological overlap here, because yeah, yeah, there was a feeling of like the structure, the physical spaces, the public spaces, if you will, are pretty like built in to us. Speaking of New York, specifically New York, but a lot of these cities, New York just happens for strange reasons, having a lot to do with Robert Moses and who in many ways, as anyone who's read The Power Broker knows, is like a total villain, but he was pretty great about parks. The fact mm-hmm. that there are all these playgrounds and basketball courts right next to the highways he built is not a coincidence. I mm. did as much research as I could to establish that the New York City is the you know highest number of public basketball courts. Um, and that There's no other city in America that has more. I had fun thrashing away in the archives, just trying to get a handle on when was the meeting when they decided like every park will have like a sprinkler, monkey bars, a seesaw, maybe a handball court. And then over there, a basketball court. And the best I could do was a meeting in the 1930s when they were discussing a variety of, um, you know, hobbyists, amateur athletic possibilities. Among them was jacks, you know, where like the little bouncing ball. And mm-hmm. you pick up these little pieces, and I and I couldn't get any closer, but I just loved the thought that there was a, a guy, one guy in a meeting going, "Every playground needs a jacks court." Yeah, kids love jacks. Hopscotch. <laughs> like, it's like, well, what are we going to do? And someone, the basketball prevailed, and everyone got a basketball. But um, zooming all the way back to what you're saying, I don't know for sure what's going on. Gentrification mm-hmm. is definitely part of it, but another thing that I talk about is professionalization of childhood, you know, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, playgrounds used to have this sort of tiered world of like the little kids, the young kids, the not so young kids, the high school kids, the older kids, the guys with the older kids, the, you know, the A court, the B court sort of thing. And um, there's now a lot of talent that doesn't just go out and play in this just unstructured way that they, they are involved in structured athletics, AAU, or they have a, private coach or they go to a day camp and there's nothing wrong with this per se but it does shrink the pool of people who just come out to play and for a while i think that was one of the other things along with gentrification along with video games um and the online life you know Mm -hmm. but i wrote an addendum in the book the piece alludes to a visit to the court in harlem where kareem abdul jabbar had lived near and, you know, played when he was a kid. And I go up there and play some pretty good half court pickup ball, but it's kind of thin on the ground and I leave and I am sort of dismissive of this gaggle of very young kids. They were just running up and down. It barely qualified as basketball. And that was like 2015. And then like seven years later, I'm driving down somewhere with the windows down and suddenly I'm convinced that I'm listening to Giannis Atatokempo talking like in the next car and i look over like wow is that Giannis? and in that moment i realized like hey you know i was too quick to be like yeah there are kids on the playground but that's not basketball it's like who the hell knows they were all 12 and Mm -hmm. seven years later one of them just pascal siakam i mean joel Embiid. i mean it's one of the weird Mm -hmm. features of our basketball landscape is how the idea was that the game would be global and it would be great and all the owners and the NBA would make lots of money because this new market would open up 
I don't think it was anticipated that the new markets would then feed superstars back into the league. Hmm. Yeah, there's like a, a expanding number of examples. I mean, yeah. um, you know, Jokic was recruited and and drafted in the second round in large part because of this kind of expanding of of global recruitment. So there's been this kind of like border crossing that has happened. And in some ways, uh, that Adam Sandler film Hustle is like about that, right? Yeah. You know, that the the discovery of a player that then you develop um, you know, but we're imagining these players primarily as, as commodities, I think. Mm-hmm. And that to me is mm-hmm. like the concerning thing. And, and to kind of, um, stay on that, uh, idea of the kind of, in a way, the unique temporality of playground basketball and, and just like making room for play. The book does talk about sort of leaving room for imp- improvisation in basketball and kind of gestures in some, in, at certain moments to like, the ways that analytics have made the professional game really regimented and rigid. Um, do you think that like analytics specifically, like looking at a player um, who might be unorthodox, like jo- Jokic and thinking like, mm-hmm. how do I, how do I sque- squeeze every you know bit of potential out of this player and fit him into the NBA game? Do you think that that like mechanizes athletic performance and do you think those techniques of kind of like optimization can ever fully automate athletic performance? Or is there something that always escapes? Well, to answer your last question first, no. I think mm. there's always going to be something anarchic and random and bizarre because right. that's what human beings are. And sometimes this bizarre anarchy is manifested physically. Like, for example, you get Anthony Davis at one as a junior that no one cares about. And by the mm. beginning of his senior year, he's 6'10", and people are freaking out. It's quite unusual to have like a number one draft, whatever, someone so sought after have been anonymous so recently. It's because he just grew. And there's yeah. a, lots of examples like that. Um, the analytics, I'm not concerned about players being mechanized. but And in some ways, I think they're actually fun and interesting because you look at Jokic and you go, wow, he's doing beautiful, bizarre things. It's hard to fully understand what he's doing until you're presented with these detailed analytics where that, that explain to you that he's making such a high percentage of his shots. So that makes it each time he touches the ball so valuable. But they also explain to you, unlike all the other big superstars, that when he gets the ball, say his countrymen more or less approximately, Luka Doncic, Doncic gets the ball. He keeps the ball. The ball is in Luca's hand for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jokic is like, get me, let get this out. I, he just wants to give it away as fast as he can. Yeah, he's like he's dominant, but he's not ball dominant. Yeah. Yes, it's all. So I'm I don't begrudge you know analytics as a way of appreciating the game. Um, but I I just for the record I think you're raising toxic masculinity in sports and and basketball and playground basketball is very interesting mm-hmm. and i'm usually quite averse to the phrase and the topic which i feel is too simplistic but in this case it's interesting because i can hear in your voice that you're valorizing and valuing public space and the sort of mm-hmm. demos of a public place where people have to come and sort things out among themselves so yay great but that's also a place where there's all kinds of batshit behavior like the kevin um Garnett discussion we had. I own you. You have to deal with that. Yeah, no. 
And I've experienced that myself. Um, you know, like these random conflicts with sort of alpha males don't just take place at the highest levels of the sport. Um, they can they can certainly take place as it were at the grassroots. So valorizing it uh, is it can be simplistic too. Um, but I I just sort of. But wait, I need to interject. Are are you a basketball player? Uh, I yeah, to some extent, but not to the point. Like I I think because of these experiences where I've had uh, uh, I've been embarrassed by uh, more dominant players, I I don't look for competitive play at all. Like I just shoot on my own. I shoot around with other people. I play with kids. So, but that's a yes. Know, that kind in that of, case, that's a yes. I mean, yeah, that, that'd be a yes. If you're if you find pleasure in like shooting a basketball by yourself, then yes, you, you play basketball. I certainly um, do. Yeah. Cause I was fascinated when I looked at all your other guests and I went, wow, my book does not immediately, you know, make sense in the context of your other mm. guests on this podcast. Thrilled, thrilled to be here. But thank you. Yeah, no. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a fascination of mine. Like there's this, there's this fun moment in, in your book where you talk about this kind of, um, dad mode coming over you of just needing to disconnect by watching a game. I sort of have that too, that, you know, basketball is a way if I'm watching it as a spectator sport to kind of just in, in a sense, turn my brain off or at least experience something that doesn't require that level of like conscious focus. Um, and I do just appreciate, it. I mean, like the, the fact of the matter is there is like ultimately real beauty in, in just like jump shooting. I mean, uh, I really liked how you detailed the mechanics of different shooters, jump shots and movements. I honestly kind of wanted to unpack that too. Like your description of Damian Lillard's half court series ending bomb of a three pointer mm -hmm. against mm -hmm. the thunder in 2019 is just perfect. Um, so like, first of all, what are your kind of favorite shooters to watch? Do you prefer kind of fluid textbook shooters or kind of more funky unorthodox shooters? Uh, to answer that question directly, I think I gravitate a bit towards weird, unorthodox players like Jokic or James Harden. Uh, to mm -hmm. take a step further back from that, I was just in a kind of book club environment around the book with one of the people there was a former dance critic for The New Yorker named Mindy Aloff, who's just published a book called Why Dance Matters. And she asked me somewhat similar questions, to which my response was that, I certainly don't write about basketball like a dance critic, but I do feel like I, I want to attend to something that is otherwise suppressed as being too weird in most writing about sports. You know, when you're just, these are bodies, these are physical beings and their movements and their habits and their needs physically. And, you know, I get become, I recall and repeat a couple of times this tossed out remark that at a marginal NBA player by the name of Al Farouk Aminu made to me when he was quite young, when he said it, he's like, your body is your business. And I was like, wow, that's, mm -hmm. that's intense, you know? And this is a guy who is not a super duper star. You know, I'm, I've been around the other extreme of this is Zion Williamson, who's such a superstar, who's been an international celebrity since he hit puberty and has been like an Instagram media sensation since he was 15 years old who's now made so much money already that he's having a, I shouldn't say a hard time is treating his body like a business. He is, he seems to be trying to take care of his body better, but he's had a very hard time staying on the court. There's been issues about 
his professionalism. Um, and it's been, I've tried to write about this. The Zion story is so weird and it's been hard to put that into words, but I do try to just account it to the physical realities of bodies in these discussions, including um, the fact that these are players who are much more physically exposed than any other, any other professional athlete. I like that you point out that kind of baseline fact about no pun intended baseline fact um, about yeah, basketball yeah. <laughs> that, um, you know, there, there is, yeah. there, there is more body exposure, you know, the introduction, you talk a bit about like the introduction of these sleeved uh, yeah. uh, jerseys yeah. as kind of a marketing thing. And I know LeBron like hated them. He said like it affected, yeah. he, he, there's no margin for error, error with his jump shot and it, it threw, yeah. a, threw everything off. Yeah. Um, so it, it is a very embodied like thing. And I, you know, I, I, I think one way, I, one direction I wanted to take that in is, is to talk about defense. Like at one point in the Latrell Sprewell piece, you talk about like that player's really strong defensive abilities and link yeah. it to this like will to power. And, yeah. and Draymond, Draymond Green has talked quite a bit this season, this past season about how defense is a matter of will. Yeah. Uh, and I think like, People don't talk enough about the greatest defenders, I don't think. Like the players who win defensive player of the year in the NBA are certainly celebrated, but not in the same way. Like they do right. the dirty work. They're movable walls that protect the paint. That's what they do. Um, and so, but I wonder like if if basketball is jazz, as David Thorpe says, you know, what quality <laughs> does defense have, you know, in that kind of point counterpoint production of a melody you know like when somebody like james harden crosses up a defender sits him down it does feel musical you know um and so yeah i mean how do you think about the role of defense generally no it's just i'm just do i want to dwell for a moment on this intriguing notion that you can correlate flourishes offensively to musical flourishes but what what about defensively? Like, what's that? Like John Bonham's mm. right foot? Like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting question. Um, all I, I mean, what I can bring to this discussion is that the professional level defense is the obsession of people who want to win games and win series and then playoffs and on and on. At uh, the more personal amateur level that I'm at, it's part of this thing that you mentioned earlier where I'm trying to ratchet up the intensity because it's more fun. So mm-hmm. I play defense. I kind of want my teammates to play defense. I talk on defense. Jokic has been very helpful for understanding certain possibilities in the pick and roll in the half court. Jamal Murray and Jokic being this amazing two-man game where one can set a screen for the other. They're almost interchangeable, even though they're such different sizes. Um, and then you have to defend that, and the way you defend that is you talk. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm more in, invested in defense in the same way. I mean, frankly, more invested in the whole thing now than I was when I had a coach, you know, in high school and college yelling at me. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, like, the whole thing is there's, like, just generally glory in getting to experience the many ways that you can, like, get the ball to go through the hoop. But it's obviously defense that that wins games. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we've kind of uh, circled around it, but, you know, the Denver Nuggets are NBA champions. It's the thing that just happened, right? And the main mm-hmm. reason of the for the ascent of that team is, is certainly Nikola Jokic. The essay in the book called The Jokic Files 
like it seemed to be the longest piece in the whole book. So I wanted you to kind of, uh, you know, unpack this player a little bit like Jamal Murray. I love Jamal Murray. He's he's a good example of, as I say, that maniacal self-discipline. But Jokic is the one like you point mm-hmm. out that when when he won the MVP award in 2022, his, P, his player efficiency rating was 32.85, the highest in the history of the NBA. And you give a brilliant breakdown of why that was the case. He's unstoppable in the paint. He's dangerous from three. You you, you got to guard him one-on-one. Uh, hard to double team because, most importantly, his passing disorients defenses. Um, so do you think, would you say Jokic is like maybe the best player in the NBA and thus the world at this point? Oh, there's no question he's the best player in the whole world. And it's partly because of how unique his game is, right? Like there are no... There are really no weaknesses in it, per se. You know, I'm remembering this riff I, that I eventually cut because it was too bizarre. But when uh, this Italian absurdist playwright, Pirandello, he won the Nobel Prize. And Tony Kushner, the playwright, wrote something like, oh, my God, he won the Nobel Prize. It was so absurd. You know, he, he was laughing. This is, a, this is a guy whose metier was absurdism. And him being recognized was absurd. And I feel that way about Jokic. It's absurd. Mm. It's absurd to say Nikola Jokic is the best player in the world. He can't jump off the ground. He doesn't look very athletic. Everything he does that's amazing is it's almost a visual disconnect. The ball just went in. You know that. So that's good. But it looked so ungainly or counterintuitive mm-hmm. or ungraceful. Um, what happened with me was... He made a pass uh, at the end of a game in, I think, 2018. I saw it, and I thought, that's interesting. What's up with that dude? Mm-hmm. And started to pay attention and very quickly was really rewarded with that. You know, just he was interesting to think about and look at. And then as I got closer to finishing the book, I was going to write something about him. I was writing something about him. Now the book is finished. There's a piece in the book about Jokic but I don't feel particularly satisfied with the piece. The whole production of the book was held up for quite a long time, like almost a year while I flailed around and tried to do more reporting or just sort of hyperventilated about Nikola Jokic. All the while, my energy seemed to be legitimized by the fact that he kept doing more and more amazing things. You know, I started writing the piece when he was this obscure guy and I'm pretty candid about the fact that he looked like a, fat kid who'd been picked on in the playground and and i was a fat kid who got picked out on the playground you know i'm projecting that he's he looks like his feelings have been hurt it's like nonsense i don't know what i don't think his feelings were hurt or if they were who knows i have no way of knowing that i'm just projecting but right from that identification grew this interest and then the interest was rewarded by this bizarre player who's actually quite good and then it just he kept getting better the accomplishments got better my sense of dissatisfaction with the piece Mm-hmm. continued and it just sort of grew until I just put a cap on it. I'm very proud of the piece. I will say that I think it's like, it's a piece about a guy who existed from like 2014 to about 2020, 21, like Jokic 1.0. And I think he's in a different place physically now. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it, I think that's true. Um, and there's a few things I want to kind of pick up on there. The the first one, I guess, because it's like it's topical, is that, you know, in terms of this finals run, like this Nuggets championship, um, there's a moment in the book where you talk about how, quote, 
every final series feels as though profound statements are being made about fate, practice, preparation, self-restraint, self-sacrifice, and team culture. Um, Do you think that the narrative that you're starting to see in certain places, that the Nuggets had a relatively easy path to the championship is fair? Or is it a kind of continuation of that weird narrative around Jokic as an unorthodox player, as an underdog? The latter. Yeah. Interesting. Because like, that is uh, uh, obviously like uh, um, an important theme in terms of like the the Jokic piece that um, you know people don't don't see his game for what it is uh, um, or don't value the things that uh, are unorthodox about it. Um, and there's this way in which you know the, the championship is supposed to reinforce all of these things, uh, or like va- validate them, and yet even for people that have seen the effects it's like it's not enough because he doesn't fit the kind of prototype um Let, let's go back to the aesthetics and dance and that whole notion of the body mm-hmm. it's like Jokic is not aesthetically beautiful um if you look at like kobe bryant or michael jordan they're dancers they're gorgeous you know and Jokic is not gorgeous he's not even particularly cute you know he looks like stan laurel I think this produces some awkward feelings among sports fans who are these days all sort of amateur sports marketers, backseat general managers. It's just, it's true. I, I, I attribute a lot of it to that. I mean, if Luka Doncic achieves his potential and he wins a championship, I think people will be much happier to jump on that bandwagon. Luka's pretty cute. He's funny. Well, Jokic is hilarious, but. He's ungainly, as you say. His gait. You describe his gait, which is oh so God. on the money, right? The way he walks just, back just, to the bench. By far. Yeah. By, if, you, if you were going to give a million dollars, you would give a prize to the not just NBA player, professional athlete who most embodies the movements of Charlie Chaplin's The Tramp. Tell me there's another player <laughs> yeah. who could even come within a million miles. That's really interesting to me, too. Um, just again, thinking about this as an embodied thing rather than these people as, as gods, as it were, like people who are somehow almost immaterial and, and sublime. Um, but you've just, do, you know, a couple of times this, this question of race, right? So you talk about entering into the territory of others on the playground and like clarify that this is really about entering a quote, largely black environment in which a white, weak, soft, very tall kid appeared, um, like the links between basketball and racial politics is sort of an undercurrent in the book, but it's not like a thing you engage directly. Uh, but it does have like this long, complex history. Um, so I wondered if you, if you like, why you kind of shied away from that? Is it because you feel like other stuff has been written that that focuses on that, and and you know why you didn't necessarily want to open up a discussion about like the connections between racial politics and basketball? I feel like the, to answer you directly that playing pickup basketball on playgrounds anywhere and everywhere um, is both simultaneously like becoming immersed in issues of that nature, but at the same time, it's inures you to it. It's like it's like mm. fish water. You don't have to define it. You're just in it. It's in a weird way a refuge almost from the discussion. Some white guys, definitely myself included feel vaguely proud of themselves that like, Hey, you know, I don't give a shit. I'll go anywhere. I'll play with anybody. And they're suspicious of other white guys because 
the real physical violence I've been subject to on pickup basketball courts is from other white guys. This just happened a few days ago at Brooklyn Bridge Park. Really? I had this epic stretch of playing just recently where I was reminded that like my idea of paradise is like playing pickup basketball to leave think you're going to die. Right. You know, at some point it rained, we moved under the shed part, the roofed part in that particular playground. There was it was very noisy. It was just a lot of craziness and I happened to be on a team with this outrageously like Kobe meets Pascal Siakam sort of kid. And mm. you just can't believe how much one kid can affect winning, especially this was um, four and four half court and we just kept winning and it went on and I was just like, all right, I'll just do this until I literally expire. But there was this mm. problem at one point and it was like, we had to raise our voices. Wow. No. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, the people, it's interesting, like the way you talk about it, the people that you play with on, on public courts are often anonymous to you. Often. I mean, yeah, I, I had this horrifying thing where, so I went to, I become friendly with the Vassar basketball coach. That's where I went to school, like the antithesis of a basketball powerhouse. And <laughs> he gave me a shirt because now every single school, no matter how artsy has like some slightly jazzed up athletic program. It says Vassar basketball. And this happened over a year ago. Um, there was some situation that I was antagonized by and there was some raised voices and then it was over. And then this kid comes up to me and goes, wow, you know, do you, are you connected to Vassar? Cause I'm going there next year. And I just thought to myself, Oh Lord, you know? Um, and I corresponded with the coach and sure enough, he told me all about the kid and on and on. But, you know, I cherish the anonymity and I, I thought to myself, like, don't wear that goddamn shirt anymore. I don't want to, <laughs> you know, I used to play at the Tulane University gym and I still do sometimes, but it's a little tricky because I don't really want to be there as a professor. I don't want to be in that role. I just want to be a player and free to do whatever. For sure. There's just a level of um, security in the anonymity and in the spontaneous community that um you know pickup basketball produces there's actually like a, a really hilarious stand-up comedian named shang wang who ha who jokes in his netflix special uh sweet and juicy is the title of it that his pickup basketball team is like kind of like the team he would do a heist with like you don't know each other that well but you sort of have to trust each other to get the job done and ultimately what you're trying to do is is not die like you are pushing yourself to presumably Im improve your health i guess but he's also, I think, talking about being competitive without being too competitive. Like when the guys show yeah. up that are that are fit, he's like, well, you don't belong here. <laughs> right. And so there's right. like there's an interesting balance there where you're committed to the game, but you're not committed necessarily to a certain notion of like superiority or like, I don't know, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. But, you know, what you know, how do you find that balance, I guess? And why do you like the community that pickup basketball provides? I want to object to the words balance and community. I will say that I found myself playing this sort of oppositional role here because there's mm -hmm. beautiful and empowering and positive things about playground basketball, pickup basketball that um, are articulated and celebrated in a number of venues and books and podcasts. And mm -hmm. I am the guy who wants to stand up for all the negativity, hostility, <laughs> problems. It's not, you know, mm. it's when you say balance, I think to myself, no, I'm either ecstatic to be playing well 
or I be, I'm in a state of total despair, miserable. You know, the opening of the book is like I get essentially bullied by this giant dude. My little mm-hmm. nine-year-old is around to see it. That's true. You know, I think everything's okay. And I'm chatting with him like, yeah, well, you know, you just play hard and do your best. And my nine-year-old or 10-year-old, maybe he was at the time, he's like, I think he's all cool. Everything's good. And he just goes, we should find that guy and murder him. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, crap. And actually murder him. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, what am I exposing the kid to? And Right. And I'm... Are you trying to be honest about those things? Yeah, I get it. I just, I just feel like I'm either all in and it's absurd. And then I have this moment of clarity, like, what are you doing? You're a grown man. This is a playground. Mm. Get outside of this stupid little recreational space and take care of your body. Take care of your family. Take, do your work. <laughs> it's absurd. So, but, but there's a lot of voices speaking not incorrectly about these wonderful qualities. And I'm here to talk about what an insane self-destructive activity it is. Right. But it's funny, like it's insane. It's self-destructive. It's agonistic and an antagonistic, Mm -hmm. but there's also, you say like a mystical spiritual allure that isn't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, um, opposed to those things like that, that those two things are actually not mutually exclusive. Absolutely. Um, There can be something transformative about, competition in a sense right yeah um and so yeah i guess like maybe one way to um think about that would be to ask about being being like angry basically about being relegated to uh the post oh my god you talk about the post as a prison right Mm -hmm. and and like somebody like Jokic is obviously like more than a post player and in some ways a symbol of how that traditional center role is a thing of the past um but you talk about how like you were pigeonholed as a taller person as basically, you know, a player that should go down low. Yeah. Um, and it was really only by dedicating to yourself to like improving your three point shot that you were able to break out of that. Uh, have you thought any more about like this idea that, you know, big guys need to learn how to shoot? Is there any nostalgia for players that are just about like back to the basket brutality room for hardworking centers like Steven Adams, for example, or are those players like gone for good? Well, I love Steven Adams. Um, He's great. The drollest yeah. man in the NBA. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Adams is amazing. He's definitely a role for him. That takes us perilously close to talking about John Morant, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Culturally. And here's my two cents. I mean, I'm so amused to hear your level of engagement with basketball, knowing the nature of your other interests and the nature of your other guests. But I'm just going to go with it. I thank you for your close read. Um, it's not just that, you know, Tom got better at shooting threes. It's also just the culture of basketball became more acclimated to the notion of like Brooke Lopez, you know, shooting threes and mm-hmm. basically every big guy. Splash Mountain. Right. <laughs> well, there are some exceptions. Steven Adams is actually one of them, but largely now it's understood that those, those Adams can't shoot threes, but he can defend on the perimeter. He can switch off of picks. He can, yeah. Um, but the other side of the Jokic story, since we're here, I feel almost a little abashed to go here, but you brought us here. I'll do it. The other side of the Jokic story is he's re-glamorized the post in ways I never could have anticipated. And he does it because, you know, when you get the ball in the post, your back is to the place you're going to shoot at. So there's this weird, like, operating in the dark moment. This brings us all the way back to shooting in the dark. You know, Mm. you need to turn and shoot, or in the case of, Kareem, he sort of turns and shoots at the same time. Like, that's what the skyhook was. 
mm-hmm. and it's sort of revealed to you like where you're going at the exact moment you're letting go of the ball. And it's fraught and it's just kind of stressful. And the big mistake is to rush. And I feel like Djokovic's incredible contribution, both as a post player and more generally, is just he doesn't rush. He's the most unhurried guy. He's going to take his time. He's like Ferdinand the Bull or something, just going to sniff the flowers. I've got the ball. I'll pivot this way. Maybe that way. How about I come back here? He's on Djokovic time. And I think that's awesome. So I'm so pleased that I can leave the post. I'm a warmer. I feel more warmly towards it than I have in quite a long time. Obviously, like one of the big ideas in the book is this notion of um, your game being a, a process, you know, you being a project. And you say you used to hate that, but now you kind of like it. Um, Love it. You know, the you know, the players that I like watching, that's what makes them interesting is year after year, like seeing what they add to their game. Um, and uh, like yeah. Who? Our, well, like somebody like Harden, right? Like his, you talk about the increasing number of step backs that he, he took um, and whether it was a travel. He, he talked about like um, in the off season one year, ta- adding like a sidestep to that step back, which I don't think he ever really integrated. Um, right. You know, so those, those are the kinds of things. And just like hearing players like Giannis talk about like trying to make their game more boring in a sense at one point right like um i I think that's interesting um and and also equal almost equally interesting is thinking about players who can't really evolve their game like westbrook you know like here's my two cents i mean i'm so amused to hear your level of engagement with basketball knowing the nature of your other interests and the nature of your other guests i thank you for your close read 